Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, public health officials in California are keeping an eye on BA2, Omicron's more contagious subvariant. It's been blamed for surges in the UK, China, and other parts of Europe and Asia. BA2 became dominant in the US last week, but it's unclear what kind of impact it will have here. As California continues to relax rules aimed at reducing COVID transmission, we talk with Scripps Research Institute's Eric Topol about what to be on the lookout for and about the latest round of studies showing troubling long-term health problems after a COVID infection. Join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Several states in the Northeast are now seeing jumps in COVID-19 cases, some by as much as 40%. So will California see the same thing? Last Friday, the state dropped its requirement to show proof of vaccination or a negative test at big indoor events, the latest in a series of moves to lift COVID-related rules. But even if our state sees a new surge in cases from Omicron subvariant BA2, how bad would the impact be? We put those questions to cardiologist and scientist Eric Topol of Scripps Research Institute, who joins me now. Dr. Topol, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Glad to have a chance to be with you. So are we. And I mentioned the increase in cases that the Northeast is seeing in my introduction there. And and some think it's an undercount since home tests aren't always reported. But the numbers are not anywhere close to what we saw with Omicron over the winter. So what do you think we need to understand about these numbers in the Northeast? How worried should we be? Yes, well, it's perplexing in a, in a good way. Uh, the fact that the cases are rising, but really in a general fashion, not associated with uh, really any increase in hospitalizations. Uh, and it's dominant. You know, the Northeast, as you know, was the first place in the country to get over 50% of BA2 having overtaken the uh, prior Omicron sister variants, BA1, BA1.1. So the Northeast was kind of our bellwether, particularly states like New York and Massachusetts. And that they, they had gotten down to a very low level of cases. So that's one thing. Uh, unlike when we saw the surge right after Thanksgiving throughout the country, we were at a high uh, baseline. This time we're much lower. So it's a little early to say, the, make the final call, but it, I think we'd have to conclude that it's only going to be a mild wave so far. It may not get too severe. Uh, and we're looking now at the entire country, well, about 75% or higher of BA2 for all of its new cases. So this doesn't have a bad look at all. Uh, and that's terrific. So that means you also think a mild wave in California as well, since we're already seeing evidence that it's here, of course. Right. We're well over 50% now in California, and we're still going down in cases. Now, as you mentioned uh, at the top, the rapid 
tests, home tests are being used more and more. So our read on cases is somewhat skewed. That is, it's probably uh, underestimate. But we were using a lot of rapid tests even uh, in the first part of the Omicron wave. So it's hard to say for sure, but everything looks very positive in California uh, and, in fact, better than what we're seeing in the Northeast right now. Even in parts of California, say, where there are low vaccination rates. Yes. And I think this is what you're bringing up is kind of the major explanation of why we may be spared a BA2 severe wave as occurred in more than a dozen countries in Western Europe. And that's because of prior immunity, uh, be it from vaccines or from uh, prior COVID infections. Uh, There have been some countries where they had basically almost nothing happen from BA2 like in India, Bangladesh, Sweden, many countries didn't have a a response to BA2, unlike what we saw in Western Europe and now in Asia. So it hasn't been consistent everywhere. And part of that may be, like in South Africa, there was very little effect in BA2, uh, and maybe because of uh, the prior immunity from the Omicron variants that affected about 40% of Americans, it's estimated, had an Omicron BA1 or BA1.1 infection. And and you're right, that is exactly what I was getting at, because we've been hearing that some public health experts are saying that the fact that we had a pretty bad winter Omicron surge means that we're actually protected against the worst effects of BA2, and, and you're giving us global examples as well. So that's really interesting to learn. Um, I do want to step back for a second, though, and can you just review what we know about BA2? Because people have called it stealth Omicron. They say it's a lot more contagious than Omicron. Like, how much more contagious are we talking about? Because there are still a large number of people who've not had uh, COVID or, or people who cannot be vaccinated. Right. Well, the stealth name is pretty stupid, I think, but <laughs> it's not it's not at all stealth. I mean, this is it's uh it's hyper contagious. And I actually thought when we saw Omicron initially, how could we get anything more contagious than that? Because if you looked at the curves of the infections, it wasn't a curve, it was a straight vertical line. And here we have a a, a variant that's pretty distinct from the Omicron initial variant BA1. This BA2 is 30% more contagious, more contagious, which is is extraordinary. And that's why uh, in Western Europe, it became so much of a a major issue. Uh, It does have a lot of distance. uh, That is uh, what we call antigen distance. The way we see it, 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 when we try to develop an immune response, it's quite distinct from the original BA1. So uh, it has many different mutations, and it's about as far away from BA1 um, as, let's say, gamma and delta variants were from each other. So it, even though it's part of the Omicron family, it's definitely a challenge to our immune system. And as it turns out, uh, at many of the antibodies that were being used for therapy don't work uh, anymore for BA2, just as they did not for BA1, but even more of a challenge. So it has a lot of what we call immune evasion because it's so uh, hyper mutated and our body just doesn't see it well. The only good fortune as we reviewed is that there's this cross immunity. So that if you had an infection with BA1, it appears to, for most people, not all, but most people, it covers BA2 as well. 
That, that's really important. If it didn't, mm. we'd be in big trouble right now. We're talking with Dr. Eric Topol, Professor of Molecular Medicine and Executive Vice President at Scripps Research Institute. And you, our listeners, if you have questions about BA2 or whether California will see a new, a new surge or what kind of impact it will have, you can call us now at 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. So Dr. Topol, are you saying then that our vaccines are not as effective against this variant? Like how, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) very important caveat. So two doses is basically not going to do anything against uh, the Omicron variants. Three doses actually works quite well. It it, it doesn't do much, you know, for infection. It it starts off at about 50% effectiveness against infections for either of these Omicron variants. And it drops off, you know, fairly quickly over the next couple of few months. But for prevention of severe disease, hospitalizations and deaths, the booster dose is essential. I mean, there's a really major dropdown uh, of, uh, of protection without a booster against Omicron, which makes sense because it's so, so different from the, the, the ancestral original strain that the vaccines were developed for. Right. So then you are totally in support of the federal government's decision to allow fourth doses for people 50 and older over the age of 50. I'm trying to remember exactly. Right. So... There's two points there. So when I was talking about boosters, I was talking about even the initial booster, the third shot, because, you know, in the country, less than 30 percent of people have had a third shot, which is dreadful lack of protection. But the fourth shot comes up because if you're more than four to six months from the third shot and you're over age 50, uh, then it's really uh, recommended. I think it'd be very helpful to get a fourth shot. But that has to be tempered right now, because if this wave just fizzled out, uh, you could save that fourth shot coupon for a later point in time. Um, you know, it, it, a lot of this is dependent on the level of circulating virus and the risk, uh, as well as did you tolerate the, the, the third shot? If you had, you know, a pretty significant reaction to it, you may want to also hold off, especially since the threat right now, at least in California, remains uh, particularly low. Hmm. Well, let me go to Michael in Walnut Creek, who I think has a question on point. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, to that last point you were making, essentially, for those who are eligible now for a fourth shot, um, should we time it a little bit? Should we hold off on getting that booster, especially because if you think that it's not going to be a severe BA2 wave here in California, and also making an assumption that we might need another booster in the fall winter when cases might pick up again with another variant. Should we wait yeah. a couple of months or should we be eligible to start getting the shots immediately since they're available now? Thanks. Yeah, no, it's a really great question, Michael. So I think the first point is if you're just staying put and you're not traveling, you're going to regions of the country or the world where it's a, it's a higher level of virus, that's an important consideration. But if, you, if you're not traveling, uh, I would just keep an eye on the metrics um, and wait, uh, just because if you've had the three shots, you're good right now. The incremental benefit of the four shot, yes, there is. But it's really if you're going to be in a place where you're going to get exposed uh, to a, a fair amount of virus, and, and we're just not seeing that right now. So I would suggest waiting. Uh, the other thing is we're expecting in June 
probably early June, I hope, maybe late May, if we're fortunate to see an Omicron-specific vaccine as a booster. And that would be helpful because you know, rather than getting the original um, vaccine, getting a, an Omicron vaccine booster uh, would be an advantage, even though so far in a couple of animal models, there, there wasn't a distinct advantage, but they're not people. And hopefully there's something to gain from the Omicron-specific vaccine. At this time, people are also waiting around that timeline for a vaccine for kids under five. What do you think about that in relation to the fact that there's something more specific to Omicron potentially? Right. Well, you know, when the virus clears out, as it's doing right now, uh, in terms of the threat, the, the urgency to get a vaccine for even younger children is, is much less, uh, if at all. Uh, obviously, the biggest problem we have with children of all ages is that their parents aren't vaccinated enough and they're not boosted enough. That's the way to protect them right now. Um, but, you know, we will eventually see right now, you know, Pfizer is obviously working on a three shot program, which was unfortunate because they went too low on the two shot. The Moderna program for young children is a two shot program, and that probably will get through. Uh, both of them will get through in the next couple of months. But uh, we've seen very poor uptake of vaccines among children, uh, you know, five to 11. So it just doesn't look like the parents are, you know, really doing their thing as far as getting their children vaccinated as they should. We're talking about the Omicron subvariant BA2 and about COVID in California and how California should think about the recent upticks that we're seeing in other parts of the country related to COVID-19 cases. We'll have more with Dr. Eric Topol after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California is in a wait-and-see period with BA2 as states in the Northeast see a rise in cases. And as California has relaxed some COVID rules, and many people are fatigued by those rules, um, but we're hearing reason for optimism from Dr. Eric Topol, Professor of Molecular Medicine and Executive Vice President at Scripps Research Institute, also founder and director of Scripps Research Translational Institute as well. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions about the BA2 subvariant and the impact that it could have here. You can join us by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Uh, Eric Topol, this listener tweets, if you haven't had COVID, are you more at risk for severe illness with BA2? 
Right. Well, Mina, that's exactly the, the point why it's so essential for people who haven't had uh, COVID uh, or even if they've had to get at least um, a vaccine for the people who've had prior COVID, at least one shot. But yes, the risk is considerably higher. Uh, not so much the fact that um, there is uh, the association of the Omicron variants. I think people have seen in recent months uh, with this uh, label of being more mild. Yeah. Well, they're only more mild because so many people have been vaccinated or had prior COVID. They're the number of people who've died and had severe hospitalization uh, requiring, you know, ventilators, ICU. Those are the people who have not had prior COVID or they had prior COVID, but uh, that's just not enough. That's why really the vaccine on top of prior COVID or unvaccinated is essential to protect. This is a very difficult variant for the body to counter. Um, it's like I said, it's hypermutated and BA2 even worse than BA1. As you say, the vaccines are really effective at preventing hospitalizations and deaths. But I do want to talk to you about how every day, Dr. Topol, we are learning about long-term health problems from even a mild infection that didn't send you to the hospital, right? And I want to turn to those because I know you've been following them closely. There was just a recent one that came out about diabetes that found that people who've had COVID were 40% more likely to develop type 2 diabetes a year later. Right. Yeah, this is um, perhaps, you know, in the legacy of what COVID has done, you know, people tend to focus on the deaths and hospitalizations and not enough on this issue of the long COVID sequela. And so the big ones, of course, we know about the symptoms, about the severe fatigue and difficulty breathing and the, uh, you know, the other symptoms that are brain associated fog. with long COVID, yeah. brain fog, right. But what I don't think people are appreciating enough is, as you mentioned, there's a problem with diabetes that surfaced now in multiple reports somewhere anywhere between 20 to 40% more of this type two diabetes that isn't present initially, even with a mild to moderate infection, but shows up in the months ahead. And that's why people who've had prior COVID uh, may want to be in tune and certainly uh, clinicians should be about this risk uh, that occurs later. And associated with, but not just diabetes, the, the studies about brain cognitive function are extremely worrisome there as well, even without you know severe hospitalized uh, COVID. So we're learning a lot about the sequela, the cardiovascular sequela. Multiple organ systems uh, are affected more than we have appreciated along mm -hmm. the way. So I'd like to sort of break those apart a little bit. Going back to diabetes, you're saying that somebody who never really or wasn't showing risk factors for diabetes gets COVID, they're just as likely potentially to also to get diabetes a year later based on some of these studies. Like it's happening to people who didn't previously have risk factors for it. Well, they might have had risk factors, uh, but the point is they didn't have any signs in their lab tests uh, up to one month that they had uh, glucose to intolerant. You know, they didn't have a fasting high glucose or any mm -hmm. indicators that they were actually diabetic. But at, at a year later, in between that one month and 12 months, uh, it surfaced. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of these people did indeed have risk, but they had never manifest diabetes until 
um, and this is against controls that were, you know, matched uh, for uh, age and risk factors, and not just one study, multiple studies now. This was a surprise. I don't think we anticipated. We don't really understand the true mechanism. We know there's some inflammation that occurs uh, in multiple organs, including the pancreas. Um, but, you know, the actual mechanism of this late diabetes uh, story, and even if it's 20%, that's a lot of percent considering yeah. how many people had COVID infections. I doubt it's as high as that. But, um, you know, the, the question is, in, in a one of the range of severity of COVID, there's likely to be some proportionality that is, you know, with more severe, moderate cases that were perhaps on the brink of hospitalization, you would expect to see more than people that had, you know, very mild symptoms. And by the way, while we're on it, we don't really know about Omicron at all about long COVID issues because it's so new. It only started in, you know, late November around the world. So uh, we don't know if that's implicated like the prior variants. I want to ask you also now what you were saying about brain issues. So there was a study published last month, um, and I think you said that it had major findings of loss of gray matter, reduced brain size, cognitive decline. All of that sounds pretty scary. <laughs> Can you describe yeah, those findings yeah. and just put them into context for us yeah, for someone really. who's had a COVID infection? Well, you're right on there. Mine, uh, this is a really... Um, troubling report and backed up by others, but it's, it's the best study of the brain we have because in the United Kingdom, they had this so-called biobank whereby before there was a pandemic, they were doing brain scans in thousands of people. Um, and so then they could bring back these people after they had COVID or if they didn't have COVID as controls and do a repeat brain scan and cognitive testing. And they had the cognitive testing done, although it was relatively rudimentary, but they had that done before. So when they brought back, you know, 400 people in each group, approximately, what they found on the scans that were done, you know, uh, and objectively uh, analyzed, these are uh, MRI scans, that the brain had shown atrophy, had some um, gray, matter, gray matter loss uh, as compared to the controls. Uh, and this is, of course, you know, in a relatively short period of time, like approximately a year after the COVID infection compared to controls. So uh, this isn't good. Now, um, you know, I think that they're going to be reporting on a much larger sample because they have more of these people they can bring back. Uh, but and, and it wasn't like they, there was massive atrophy. It was small amounts, but, you know, easily uh, discerned. So, uh, you know, this is very, very concerning, and it isn't the, the, the first study. Uh, it's one of several that raises this brain um, uh, effect of COVID uh, and brings it out. Uh, it's fortuitous uh, in the fact that we wouldn't have known this uh, without these remarkable UK biobank baseline mm. scans and cognitive testing. Does it matter what variant you were infected with? Well, I guess Delta or Omicron. Any, yeah. Yeah. We have no data for Omicron. Let's just hope it's much less with Omicron um, because we know Omicron is different. It doesn't cause nearly as much you know, loss of smell and taste and different symptoms. So hopefully it won't be seen with Omicron. But, you know, most of those people were with the early uh, uh, versions of the virus, you know, the alpha, delta predominantly. 
So it was clearly associated with those um, uh, variants. But uh, no, we don't have enough breakdown of you know 400 in each group to be able to say much about one variant versus another yet. And then the last thing you mentioned was cardiovascular, and I just want to get to that before I take more calls and comments, because there was another large study that found a big increase in heart and blood vessel problems for people who had had COVID a year earlier compared to those who didn't uh, with, a con with a control group. And I also saw that you called the results of that study worse than you expected. Um, yeah, so can you help yeah. us understand what they are finding about heart issues with people who get COVID? Yeah, this is uh, yet another surprise, I would say, in the, in the wrong direction. So um, this is the VA, uh, which has a massive data set, uh, our largest health system in the United States, of course. And they had millions of controls with uh, you know, over 100,000 people where they tracked their cardiovascular uh, uh, outcomes out to one year. So we did not have a previous report like this sure, in the sure. pandemic. Yeah, and what yeah. they showed was you know, this very remarkable increase in blood clots, in um, heart dysfunction, in stroke, uh, you know, across the board, arrhythmias. Uh, and there was uh, evidence that this occurred even with mild infections, and it increased the likelihood of all these cardiovascular risks as the severity of the infection increased. So this isn't, again, a sole report. It's the best of the studies, but there's several. There was just one uh, yesterday that showed by systematic magnetic resonance imaging, um, a large amount of people with long COVID who weren't vaccinated uh, actually went on to have impairment of their heart function. Um, you know, one in five uh, people with long COVID who didn't know it and weren't picked up by blood tests, the so-called troponin. So there's, a, again, like diabetes, um, again, like the brain that we discussed, there's more evidence of these heart and blood vessel issues than we had forecasted. So are you saying that doctors, for example, should be checking or screening people for diabetes, um, brain issues or heart issues if they've had a COVID infection, like that should become part of the protocol? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I'd go that far about, you know, doing any kind of scans unless people had symptoms. Um, perhaps the, the one thing that would be useful is at least checking uh, a fasting blood glucose uh, in follow-up of a COVID infection six or 12 months later, at least once, because that can be um, below the surface of uh, symptoms. Um, but no, I think the use of the scans is more academic because, mm. you know, we, we learn about this impairment sure. in the brain, but they're not, you know, clinically manifest issues. I mean, that level of cognitive decline, it was quantified, not severe, but, you know, obviously something we wouldn't want to see. Uh, so I would say it's it's for clinical use, but it certainly raises flags for um, for our concern. Yes, and you mentioned a lot of the data from these studies came from Veterans Affairs. That population does skew older; it, it tends to skew white and male. How do you consider that when you evaluate the results and, and apply them more broadly? Yeah, another really good point. So uh, like so much of medical research, we often lack diversity of the people that are 
uh, what we're learning from. And as you say, you know, a lot of the reports, particularly in diabetes, there's, as I mentioned, there's, there's, there's multiple now, but they are very heavily uh, weighted towards um, uh, European ancestry. So we, we need more diversity for all of these. That was the same with the UK biobank study. And with the veterans, you know, we have some representation of women, uh, but not nearly enough. And it is a skewed population, even though it's so large. So yeah, that's one of the reasons why you want to see independent replications of all these studies. And you want to see it across um, ancestries and ethnicities. And we still need more of all of these. We're talking with scientist and cardiologist at Scripps, Eric Topol, and you, our listeners, can join the conversation with your questions about uh, COVID, the BA2 variant, uh, vaccinations, and also if you've recovered from COVID, curious what your questions are about some of these potential long-term health impacts that we've just been talking about, 866-733-6786. Let me go to Tom in Redwood City. Thanks for waiting, Tom. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my, my question is more about, uh, having, I have two young kids and to make it relevant to everyone, kind of the dosing and the recommendation for waiting to get vaccinated after you've been infected. We, the whole house got it in January. I'm assuming it's Omicron. So how long to wait now until the kids can get vaccinated? And then a lot of our friends are spacing out the two pediatric dosing, um, from, from one to the next, just to give either added protection or reduced side effects. Um, so in that population. Hmm. Tom, thanks. They had it in January, Dr. Topol. Yeah, I guess the question is, was that on top of three shots or, or two? Tom? Um, it, yeah, so for my, for my kids, it was on top of none. So they, had, uh, they hadn't been uh, vaccinated yet. They've got what we assume Omicron, and now we're going to get them vaccinated. But now we're waiting to see. We're told 90 days by some physicians, some, oh, just go get it. So I think that causes some hesitancy in some parents. Um, and then also spacing out dosing. We have a lot of friends who have ended up spacing out the dosing because that second shot was hitting the kid harder or because they were, like you've said, they want to save that second dose to when maybe cases have gotten higher. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I got confused when you were using we, and I wasn't sure if you meant you and the kids. Um, yeah. So a few points here. Uh, I do think it's, it's good to space more than three to four weeks, the two doses of that we're talking now between ages five to all the way up through teens. Um, and the reason I say that is the studies uh, all show that when you have spacing at six to 10, 12 weeks, you get a better bang for the vaccine. And as long as we're, it's not an urgent matter uh, to try to rev up the protection, which for right now we're, you know, in a, in a pretty good situation. I, I like the spacing. And I even recommended that when my grandchildren were getting um, their vaccines. Uh, as far as do they need to get vaccinated, uh, having had Omicron, you know, that's like the discussion we had earlier from the questioner, uh, Michael. Um, you know, the, the, if, if things are really quiet as they're heading right now, uh, the need to do that at the moment is reduced. But uh, there may be an uptick still uh, in California, and I think keeping an eye on that would help decide. But, you know, at least a month is the general recommendation if you're going ahead with getting the first shot in, in children after an infection. Right now, with an Omicron infection, um, 
especially if they had uh, any significant symptoms, they're probably going to have some pretty good immunity towards BA2. There are some reinfections with BA2 from BA1, uh, as shown initially from Denmark, but they're pretty darn uncommon, fortunately. Well, thanks, Tom, for the call. Leslie writes, could the guest speak to recent research being done to try to answer the question of why some people, despite coming into contact with the virus, never get infected? Yeah, that's a very important point. And uh, there are many studies now addressing that, uh, uh, these so-called genome-wide association studies. And there's been a, be a bunch of different protective factors or susceptibility factors that have been identified. They're pretty rare, however. We know much more about the susceptibility factors where some 10% of people have um, interferon systems, the initial innate immune system that doesn't perform uh, properly. But the ones that are really protective so far are pretty rare. Uh, but yes, part of it is genetics. Uh, we just don't know enough yet about all that. Uh, and uh, it's really interesting because... Uh, as being implied, there are a fair number of people, no matter how much exposure they have, uh, they never get COVID. If we could all be like that, that'd be terrific. Well, we're talking about COVID, the Omicron subvariant VA2, recent studies on the longer term effects of infection and the new vaccine authorizations, all of it with Dr. Eric Topol, Professor of Molecular Medicine and Executive Vice President at Scripps Research Institute here in California. You, our listeners, can join by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, by emailing forum at kqed.org, or getting in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. I'm Nina Kim. We'll have more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about COVID in California, where we are now as a state, and some of the latest research and what it's telling us about long-term health effects from an infection. Eric Topol is with us, founder and director of Scripps Research Translational Institute in Claremont, and uh, also professor of molecular medicine and executive vice president at Scripps Research Institute. You, our listeners, can join us if you have questions about BA2 vaccines, or if you've recovered from COVID and have questions about long-term health impacts, 866-733-6786, the number. And let me go to caller Stephanie in Santa Clara. Thanks for waiting, Stephanie. Sure. Thanks for taking my call. Um, you know, I'm a mother of a child who is going to be four years old soon. 
I'm a school psychologist. My husband's a doctor. Um, we have been taking this very seriously from the beginning, you know, doing everything that we can, masking our child. I even chose my child's preschool based on their masking policies. Mm. So I am itching and and just waiting to get that vaccine for my son. Um, and what makes me even more concerned, you know, it's back you know, last year when we learned about the neurological challenges that people were having after experiencing COVID, that's what really set off the alarm bells for me is because I know that there's such a rapid rate of growth in brain development, especially in children under five. So I'm wondering if you know of any studies or any information that we have on very young children who have experienced COVID, whether is there any, if there's any documentation of any neurological challenges, cognitive challenges, or any other types of developmental um, insults that's happening as a result of their exposure to COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also, if you can just give us any more information on, um, you know, whether or not um, the new vaccines coming forth might um, give a little bit of better protection on the strains that are um, existing now, or if this is just going to be a sort of a, a repeat or rehashing of the earlier strains. Thank you. Okay, Stephanie, thanks. Um, Dr. Topol, I guess you can take them in the order that you'd like. Um, right. Uh, thanks, Mina. Well, very important questions you're bringing up, Stephanie. Um, I think the long COVID kids, uh, there have been many studies. Uh, it appears to be, you know, much lower incidence than in adults. And remember the three studies that Mina and I were reviewing the cardiovascular, the brain, diabetes, those were all in adults. So far, uh, everything we've seen with kids is they're much more resistant to getting these long-term sequelae. Uh, So that's good. Uh, How low that is, uh, it does happen, but how low it is, particularly in very young children, uh, it just isn't known, but it it may be uh, very uncommon. Um, Now, as far as the vaccines, the problem we have, frankly, is the vaccines were phenomenal through the Delta variant, you know, 95% suppression of symptomatic infection within in the first four months. But and with Omicron, because it's mutated so much, the protection against infection is reduced substantially. So even when the vaccines become available, uh, and even if there's an Omicron-specific vaccine, uh, our ability to, to truly prevent infections in children is impaired just because the virus has evolved so darn much because we never were able to contain it. So that's one of the hard realities we're facing right now in trying to protect all our children is that there's still going to be, the vaccines will help some, but even at best, you know, in the first few months, there are 50% instead of 95% against symptomatic infections. So um, that's uh, why we do need better vaccines. I've worked, uh, you know, trying to get the push for, uh, a pan coronavirus vaccine for everyone, children, adults alike, because that would protect against all variants and keep that level of protection against infections very high. But we haven't put enough uh, of our resources and priorities into that type of vaccine. We've been very much reactive instead of you know uh, what we could be doing, which is you know just basically taking control of this virus every possible which way it could bo- it, it possibly combined. Uh, by using a pan-coronavirus vaccine. Well, thanks, Stephanie, for the call. And let me go to Bob in Berkeley next. Hi, Bob. Hi. Uh, thanks very much for taking my call. Uh, my question is, 
should we mix and match the uh, second booster? I'm 74, and I've had three Moderna shots. And I've read something about broader immunity if you take, say, a Pfizer instead of the Moderna. And I was wondering what your opinion was. Mm. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, yeah, Bob, that's a good one. Um, I do recommend the mixing them when you can. Uh, it's particularly good if you've had Pfizer to get a Moderna. There was a recent paper last week that showed the breadth of immunity when you do that is expanded. But these are different. Uh, there's many different aspects of these two vaccines for the immune response that they induce. So if you if you do mix them, um, there's a some there's a, at least some slight advantage. Uh, it's much different when you mix a J and J vaccine and an mRNA vaccine, Moderna or Pfizer. Uh, there you get a big uh, jump, but you do get some small benefit. And so if you can, uh, when you get a booster or if you get a second booster. Uh, get one that's different. It doesn't really pay to get two that are different. That is, you know, going back and forth. As long as along the way, you got one that wasn't the same, that would be helpful. Well, let me read this comment from Rushi, who writes, can you comment about the BA2 with the L452R mutation? Yeah, well, there's a lot of these so-called um, hybrids or recombinants um, that are cropping up, which is not good. That is, we're seeing combinations of BA1 and BA2 or uh, various Omicron Delta or what was called Delta Cron. And what's happening is we're, we're, we have so poor containment of the virus. You know, that's what, why we're seeing a lot of these. Um, the BA2 does have that mutation, um, whether that is, um, you know, the BA1 has that mutation, 1.1. Um, and it's really the only mutation that's different than BA1 uh, proper. Um, we still don't know all about these, you know, different mutations that are from the different Omicron variants. We just know that they exist. Uh, what was really intriguing is there was a, a French discovered uh, Omicron um, combination, uh, Delta Omicron, uh, which they called XD. And what's interesting is it caused much more uh, loss of taste and smell, like two or three fold. So it's really fascinating that because of these recombinants that we don't want to see, and so far, none of them have spread, fortunately, so, and to any significant degree, but they help to learn for us to learn what are the mutations or the portions of the viral um, uh, RNA that are inducing the symptoms that we're seeing. But, um, you know, there's still much more work to do to understand functional effects of any particular mutations within the Omicron family. Yeah. Well, let me go to caller Tony in Vallejo next. Hi, Tony. Yeah, hi. Hi, go right ahead. Yes. Uh, yes, uh, I had uh, uh, COVID in January 21, the Delta. And uh, I, you know, and now that I'm listening to... Uh, to uh, you know, the radio is saying that the part of the memory loss, and I've noticed that uh, I've been, you know, my memory has, you know, I've been forgetting names and restaurants and stuff like that. And I go, you know, that's kind of weird because I, I do forget once in a while before uh, COVID, but uh, you know, now that I, now I, I, now I notice that I've, I've lost my, some memory. So I don't know what what I should do. Mm. And another thing that I'd like to put my two cents worth uh, uh, as far as the side effects of vaccine, uh, 
I just had another booster shot because I'm going on vacation to Europe. So that's my second booster shot. But uh, whatever uh, side effects that you're going to get is minuscule uh, to getting COVID. Uh, I had a real bad case of pneumonia, and I didn't know if I was going to make it, but I was lucky enough to go to make it. So I'd like to let everybody know that uh, whatever side effects you're going to get, it's it's nothing compared to getting COVID, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll you know that that's about it. Thank well, you, Tony. Thanks for the call. <laughs> so glad you made it. So glad you called. Could what he's describing around forgetting be connected to his infection in January of twenty one, Doctor Topol? Right. Well, it's hard to know, Mina, because uh, we all are having memory issues as we get older, right? And um, the study that we discussed. Uh, was about cognitive decline. Uh, they actually didn't show memory decline uh, in that uh, time span. It's possible uh, that you know the brain fog symptoms that are commonly reported with long COVID do uh, also include uh, issues of memory. So it's possible. We just don't know. Well, Tony, thanks very much for the call. Carol writes, SF Chronicle COVID Tracker, it shows significant numbers of new cases in many Bay Area counties, including San Francisco, which is now in the highest category with 170-some cases per 100,000 on average over the last week or so. Why are the city and state regulations not tightening up? Um, could you help us understand how you read numbers like that that Carol is describing? And do you think that we're at a point where the state should start looking at I mean, it's in this process right now of, of relaxing restrictions, if it's changed course. Right. Well, I actually did think we have relaxed restrictions uh, faster than was indicated by all the metrics. I much prefer to see, you know, full containment uh, and before we, you know, get into the relaxing state, because that's what happened in, in Western Europe in these various countries that basically said the pandemic's over, we're getting rid of restrictions. Uh, the UK is still dealing with that. Denmark went through, you know, a really tough situation there and many other countries as well that went through this relaxation. So we didn't learn from them, but on the other hand, we may get away with it because if you look at the numbers uh, and like we discussed, there's underreporting because of the rapid antigen tests and people getting mild symptoms or, or even being without symptoms and not getting tested at all. Uh, so, you know, the, it, it could be worse out there, but the, the fact that hospitalizations, that's the metric that we can count on. We're not seeing that rise. We're not seeing any in California uh, rise in test positivity rates. That's appreciable. So, uh, I wouldn't have advised it, but we may get away with it. You know, there's a lot of things I know it's hard to believe. A lot of things we actually have been lucky about, not smart, but lucky about in the pandemic. And this may be one of them. <laughs> Do you think we should be doing something like surveillance testing? I I know that places are no longer are starting to relax doing that, for example, right? Like colleges had required surveillance testing, meaning regular testing of students or communities, regardless of symptoms. Do you think that should be ongoing? Or do you think, say, things like advances in, in wastewater testing are, are enough? Yeah, the wastewater testing is really helpful. And we are seeing some of the increase, you know, in California. So that's why we have to keep our guard up. Uh, but again, that increase has been occurring without, you know, uh, any substantial increase in, in, a, in a case burden. But so wastewater is really important. Genomic surveillance is important because we could easily see a new variant. We have so many reasons, unfortunately, 
to have a new worrisome variant because we have, you know, the animal reservoirs with spillover to people. We have lots of immunocompromised people that the virus can evolve rapidly in them and then infect uh, someone else. And that's how we think Omicron uh, was started. Uh, and we don't have containment around the world. Look what's happening in China right now and in other countries where um, the virus is really taking hold. And this is in China, BA2. Um, so we have all these recombinants that we just discussed, and we could see an animal human recombinant like we saw with bird uh, flu, bird influenza, uh, bird in the human. So right now, the, we know the, the enemy, BA2, we are familiar with. We still have more to learn about it, but you know, hopefully that's not going to be too much trouble. But it's very likely in the months ahead, we will face another uh, worrisome variant. And that's when, as soon as that's detected, which we need to be all over it, not learning about it from you know other countries. Um, that's when we start to have to really rally and get our mitigation measures up and and go back into high gear of uh, of trying to avoid uh, infections. We're talking with scientist and doctor at Scripps Research Institute Eric Topol, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So in that case, Dr. Topol, what would you say that the this the country, maybe the state, needs to do with all the things that we are discussing here, the BA2 variant, but also, of course, mutations are always on the horizon, these long-term health impacts that we're starting to get more studies on because it's been some time now and we can study these things. Uh, the reason I ask is because, you know, right now there's a battle about trying to get pandemic funding um, approved by Congress, another round of it. And I guess I'm just trying to understand, I think one of the things that's been removed in a deal that the Senate made was was really looking at global and helping other nations get vaccines and so on. So just curious what your top you know, recommendations would be in terms of how we face, prepare, and, and mitigate the effects of another, of another uh, virus which is or a variation which is sure to come right well i'm so glad you mentioned that about the fact that we're not taking we're not taking all the steps we need to you know end this pandemic once and for all and one of those steps that's critical is global vaccination and we have the whole continent of africa no less other countries where the vaccine rates are extremely low uh, so we should be helping. And indeed, what Congress is doing by dismantling the proposed budget is is uh, they've taken that out. Uh, and that's not good. But there are other things that we could do that would really help us. So, for example, Paxlovid, that is a very uh, important uh, advance, perhaps after the vaccines, the most important advance in the whole pandemic, mm. uh, a pill that you take for five days if you're at high risk because of age at the earliest time when you know that you have a, a confirmed infection. And that blocks hospitalizations and deaths by about 90%, which is extraordinary. Now, we don't have enough of that. And uh, the lack of funding puts us in a terrible position because that should be available you know, widely. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, it, in every pharmacy should have a stock of it. And we need other pills because if we start using lots of packs of it, we may see emergence of some resistance to that drug uh, pill combination. But uh, we, we really haven't um, taken this seriously enough because what's good about the pills 
is that they don't depend on a variant, just like I was talking about with the current coronavirus pan vaccine, universal mm -hmm. vaccine. We need pills that are blind to variants, that are variant proof. And that's one we have right now, but we don't have enough of them. Uh, and we need others to, to fill in when we start to see, like we saw with the antibodies, um, resistance can emerge, much less likely with the pills than with the antibodies, but it's possible. So that's one of the things that we're not doing. Um, and uh, it's just really uh, unfortunate. Well, this listener tweets, what plans are there to care for those who have long COVID now? And how do we plan to deal with expanding numbers of those with long COVID slash PASC until treatments or cures are more available? How can we get doctors to recognize it? And we have just less than a minute, Dr. Topol. Yeah, well, we're, this is a big uh, gap. Uh, we don't have an effective treatment. Uh, we're not taking it nearly seriously enough. We've got multi-specialty clinics that have emerged around the country, which is a good place for people with long COVID to get assessed. But we have to find uh, better treatments. And obviously, the best prevention we have is vaccination. has a big impact, not just in preventing infections, but also preventing long COVID. Well, Eric Tobel, really appreciate you coming on to speak with us and to share your knowledge. And, and certainly, we'll be tracking the advancements that you're recommending. <laughs> Oh, Mina, thanks so much. Really enjoyed our conversation. Eric Topol, Professor of Molecular Medicine and Executive Vice President at Scripps Research Institute. Susan Britton produced today's segment. Thank you to our listeners for all of their questions and comments. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.